everyone. Uh, welcome back to the uh, ShowCloud podcast. My name is Nick Hayes. I'm the director of Cyber Solutions here at ShowCloud. On today's episode, we're joined by James Pierce, a senior director here at ShowCloud, and also special guest uh, Chad Bruston, who works for um, a company called Clyde, a startup based out of New York City. I guess today's episode, we are going to talk about the, I suppose, the new act that is making its way through the US government. So at the minute, there is a new, there's a bill there called the Strengthen American Cybersecurity Act of 2022. It is currently going through the Senate and the House for ratification and, and bringing into legislation. So the bill itself is mostly aimed at kind of government agencies, US-based government agencies, and also operators of critical infrastructure. So there's a few things in there. And when we were trying to search for the, the kind of theme, so, you know, this is coming out, the news, news, arts, news agencies have picked it up and started to talk about it a little bit. But I think there's a, there's kind of a wider theme here, which is around compliance and, and how compliance to requirements can help drive good practice, can help change how a market would react to how a market might pick up new services, new solutions, you know, and that and that kind of thing. So there's there's definitely, a, from my view, I think there's definitely a driver for when compliance can be a good thing. I guess the, the, what we're going to talk about on this this podcast is is that statement. So is, is compliance driving good practice? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Should we expect customers to get to do that off their own back? Should, you know, organizations do that off their own back? Or should we wait for governments to legislate and say, this is exactly what you should be doing? And that's the kind of theme that we're going to do today. The bill itself has quite a few interesting things in there. So there's the usual stuff. There's a couple of mentions around penetration testing, as you'd expect to find in, in a lot of these things. But there's a couple of points that we'll talk about as we go through this podcast that I've not necessarily seen before in legislation. So things like threat hunting programs, that's mentioned in there. Pen testing, so it, it talks about pen testing, all right, it's, it's fairly commoditized, we know what that looks like. We'll investigate how that's kind of changed over the years. So what does it look like now versus what it looked like 10 years ago, five years ago? There's a piece in here about ransomware, but particularly reporting of ransomware attacks within a timely, uh, you know, a time frame, and also whether you paid the ransom or not. So again, we'll we'll, We'll touch upon ransomware and get the thoughts of Chad and James as to whether that's a good, you know, where we, where we, where we think we should pay them or we think we should not pay them, the pros and cons of each. Zero Trust Architecture is, is also mentioned in here about, about kind of establishing what a, a Zero Trust Architecture looks like. I think this is quite timely given what's kind of floating around in the news at the minute with, with things like Octum. There are, it's not a conclusive story right now, so we can't comment on whether that did happen or didn't happen. But it does kind of throw up a wider question around reliance on, on identity providers within a zero trust architecture you know what what are the kind of risks for that you know what where are we shifting the boundaries moving forwards and then as we go along there's probably other areas that where things can drive market changes so things like cyber insurance actually can help to drive positive changes within within the market within organizations and that's roughly what we're going to try and cover today as we go through this so i guess first question i would have is to james to, is to james and chad so what exactly do we mean by compliance driving good practices? What do you take from that statement? And do you think it is generally a good thing or a bad thing? It's interesting because there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot, especially with this legislation. We have this, uh, it's good that it's bipartisan. It's good that it's helping with some of our federal um, agencies and especially with regard to the electrical grid and infrastructure. There's some good things in the in the legislation. First of all, uh, it focuses on NIST. So um, if you want to do business with the government, something called GSA, which is the General Services Administration, part of that means getting involved with FedRAMP. FedRAMP is a Federal Risk and Authorization Management Act that was set up in 2011. 
essentially what that is, is, is as the government gets into the cloud, as everyone else has, they have a standard way of doing it. And that's um, focuses on this. So that's a good thing. I think focusing on standards we already have and not reinventing of the wheel is good. And it brings some for businesses who want to do business with the government as their main as their main vendor, it's a good thing to let them understand what the cost of doing business is and that they will need to have a security program in place so that they can do what needs to be done and, and check the box. The other thing that this bill does, it, it has some funding in it. There's a, a Jobs Act component. So there is some funding for states to be able to actually execute on these new requirements. So I think that's a good thing as well, as well as the information sharing around ransomware and, and who paid it, who didn't pay it, things like that. And as we, uh, having a, a higher level is, is not a bad thing. I think there's a lot of uh, standards, a lot of, I guess there's a difference between security and compliance. And so compliance is great. And then there's where the rubber meets the road and where, you know, that's what I call security. So I wanna do more than what's um, the minimally acceptable. If I can, obviously there's a limited around amount of resources, but I'm also managing risk as well. So there's a lot of, uh, I don't, my CFO manages is the owner of the risk. So I have to escalate these issues with, with him so that he understands and can guide me on how to follow up. Sometimes it costs too much to mitigate a risk. Sometimes we ignore it or we get to it later. It's a, a Q3, Q4 issue. And sometimes you get uh, breached when because you haven't gotten to things yet. So there's just a lot of conversation around risk management that's important that this brings up and having more, more things to work from a checklist, if you will, is, is not a bad thing in the greater scheme of things, especially when it comes to working with the government. I like the distinction you made there about between compliance and security, wanting to do the right things already. So I guess when you've got a company and, and you've got someone who's motivated to make that happen, do these, you know, these new bills, for example, and the new new legislations, are they kind of a reaffirmation of what, you know, common sense, right? So you're doing these already, I would imagine, in, in quite a few cases. I think that we're still going to have uh, the focus on different state laws. We have laws in Virginia. We have laws that just passed in Colorado. We have California law. There's more on the docket. If you go to the IAPP website, there's a whole, a whole secret decoder ring that has each state, each bill, and what it covers, as well as a map that shows the coverage from all 50 states and where they are. That being said, I think those are things that, you know, you have to be, you have to be two-headed about it. You have to take those things into account, look at CCPA, the California law, confirm that it applies to you based, you know, the rules for California are a lot different than others. You have to have a certain size, you have to do a certain amount of business. It's interesting. So a lot of times when I'm asked, are we California compliant? Well, it depends. You're, not everyone has to be California compliant. And it doesn't mean that you're doing business in California or not. It has to do with the ability to take a California resident out of your system through a data subject access request. So you have to have the ability technically to do that at, at minimum, but it goes on and on. That being said, there is the devil's in the details and we need to, as security practitioners, know what the rules are and where are and how to how to comply with them at the end of the day because that's what's going to improve our security posture and i might just pick up on a point that you made earlier on as well around some risks are not worth spending money on to fix right so that's all about getting your your levels spend on security and defensive sure. uh, controls 
to the right level based on your threat model, I think is what you're kind of suggesting is sometimes the thing that you need to do. You don't need to defend against all the things you need to defend against your relevant threat model, right? Yeah. And that goes with zero trust. And so where are my crown jewels, not only physically within the cloud, but also who has credentials to those those assets, both intellectual property on the software development side, as well as PCI and PII, personally identifiable information and payment card industry, so credit card numbers, which I hope we're not storing on site. And so there's all of that to keep organized, if you will. If you don't know about it, then there's going to be blind spots and there's going to be some issues with being able to manage it and move it and measure it. If you can't measure it, you can't manage it. If you can't manage it, you can't move it. So I like to know everything in my environment so that I can take action if needed. Very good. Yeah, nice. Sounds, sounds good. So James, I might bring you in there if that's okay. A couple of thoughts, if you would, on, on the kind of the, the thing about the right level of spend for you know defensive controls, that kind of thing, if you would. I think what's interesting, so I've, I've, been, you know, I've been doing governance compliance frameworks for oh God, a lot of years now. What, what, what they helped with, they helped to have a set of de facto controls that we could implement to reduce risk and that was cut that that sounds like a great idea and people you know being encouraged to do that and then we got into a, a good 15 year period of running the spreadsheet approach to security and we took the controls and we've done the controls so therefore we are secure and i saw that especially doing a lot of pci work over the years as a qsa and i think it's something the chance about doing the right thing it's it's moving from sort of i think there's three phases in this there's moving from the everything's on fire approach to security and you're just running about putting stuff out then you move into the compliance approach to security i.e i've now got a tick list of things i need to do so rather than being ad hoc as i remember to do them on a friday we now move into the this is weekly this is daily this is monthly and i'll do the controls and i think where we really need to move to kind of going forwards but really it's going backwards is to becoming threat and risk centric and taking a more holistic view of the organization and what we're trying to protect so i think it's a difficult job for governments to try and enforce security back to my threes you'll you'll see i love things in threes so typically people fall into three groups there's going to be the group that doesn't care and doesn't do it there's going to be the group that does it because they have to and then there's going to be the group that kind of embraces not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law and does the right thing, as Chad mentioned. And there's no way of knowing the size of each group. But I, I definitely think the driver for it is the, the kind of the appetite within the business, the culture within the business itself, within the organisation. So we're going to do this for the right reason. So I was talking to a client last week about ISO 27001, and they want to do it to him bed a risk-driven approach to security within within the business, which we said was yeah, fantastic, the right approach. How you then balance doing all of that and not spending too much, you know, not spending £10 to protect a £1 asset, I think is a real, it's very threat asset risk focused. You know, how do we make sure that we're protecting the right assets? How do we make sure that we've carve those crown jewels off that they're very difficult to get to you know all of those things come into play back to the legislation i think you know you're only really going to capture the top two groups you're going to get the tick box group and you're going to get the group that really wants to do it properly even if you're really doing it properly already 
nobody was ever compliant by accident. So I said this through my PCI career. You can't just accidentally become PCI compliant because you're trying to do the right things. You really have to focus on the outcome. So if it was GDPR for us in the EU and now in the UK, or if it's PCI or ISO, you've really got to focus on each one and getting to each one compliant. So it's a challenge when you've got another set of regulations coming out or Chad's got regulations coming out from different states plus at a federal level. It becomes very, very difficult, I think, for organisations to attempt to manage all of these at any one time and remain compliant against all of them at the same time. And I think basically it's, a, it's an impossibility. You will have periods of non-compliance that you're not quite aware of whilst you're running compliant just because of the level of complexity. Yeah, run. I guess doing the right things though does does help you become compliant. So I guess if you're doing the right things, then you will take some of the, the things off that need to be yeah, done. Yeah, I think you could do the right things and be more secure, be less risky, but still not be compliant. Yeah, not Because PCI is a perfect example of, you know, 6.3.2.1.8. <laughs> really? That's difficult to be compliant with unless you're really thinking about that specific requirement and how, and how you evidence that to the assessor. So I think doing the right thing will probably reduce risk and make you more secure, but it may not automatically make you compliant. Are there any real world examples where kind of new you know, compliance has helped to drive good standards? So you mentioned GDPR, James, probably a, a, one of the more recent good examples, I guess. But are there any others that, that we can share? I'd like to think yes. I'd like to think it's some kind of, you know, a rising tide rises all boats. So going back to statistics a bit, so I know they can prove anything you want them to prove, but PCI, there's still a huge volume of merchants that are taking cards that are not PCI compliant. And, you know, we've, we've had a good 16-year run of this. It's not a surprise. You know, it's part of your contract. I don't think it's natural to assume that because you're in scope for something, it's going to automatically make everybody fall into line behind it. I think, and if you look at credit card fraud, you know, credit card fraud has gone exponential, even though we've supposedly got more and more secure and better at protecting card data. So that for me would suggest that maybe it hasn't worked, but equally the flip side would be, what would it be like if we didn't have PCI in place? Would it be even worse? You know, if, if we didn't have point-to-point encryption, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, would it be worse than it is already. So I think it's difficult to say things have got better, especially as we see, you know, we see more ransomware breaches. Does that mean security's got worse? Or does that mean the attackers have got better or a combination of the two? You know, will, will legislation help us combat this? I'd like to think it would, but down on the ground, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm still a bit stuck on that one. I'm not quite yeah. sure that we'll do. No, fair enough. Yeah, that's a good point. And Chad, is there anything any that you can think of that kind of led to good things? I mean, I think... So day one at Clyde, it, I was introduced to uh, two things. One, we were in the middle of a pen test, so that was good. And I was able to get up to speed and help me get understand the tech stack a lot more quickly. And then the second part was, uh, here's our SOC 2 type 1 that's going to be done at the end of the month, which was good because I was able to come in and close that out. I think there's having these um, gap analysis in advance of trying to get the report either in SOC 2 type 1 or a type 2 or a, an ISO. I think I think it, those are important. You need to understand where the gaps are internally within your organization, where you need better controls and processes. 
you know, you're only as good as um, your standards, your policies and your procedures on paper can look great and they may not be real. And so you've got to have a mix. You've got to have the policies and standards and procedures, and you also have to have tested them out and make sure that they work. So I think that there's that dichotomy of theory and practice that we live every day as practitioners and and the tooling is actually better, I would say. So being able to comply with some of these new standards and that are coming from different states here in the US and, and the federal government, I think the vendors have gotten very good about you know generating that PCI SAQ from the, the admin control panel of the, the merchant service provider you're using. So yeah, I think that while it is might be more arduous in some ways, there are better tools out there to help with, or at least helping to check the box not fully, but maybe 90%. And then that's a conversation with you and the person that wants the evidence and is either your your auditor or your the merchant that merchant's compliance team, privacy team. Everyone's trying to reduce risk at the end of the day. And so we have to just remember that. And I think picking up on Chad's point, Nick, you know, you and I have been discussing for quite some time combining the theory and the, the practical. And I think that's the, the real trick to compliance and making it work is taking those theoretical constructs of kind of control domains and then stress testing them against what you've actually got in place and, and can the controls be bypassed in an attack and a pen test and a red team if they can be bypassed by an attacker without your detection capability picking it up then the tick boxing that you've done for compliance is falling a little short so you need to then go beyond the compliance to make sure that you can best protect the organization that you're in. Well, a little um little question, little curveball question that I, I didn't put in the in the pre the pre notes or anything, but so you know, compliance is let's be honest, it's inherently boring. Can it be fun? That's the question I would ask. I would say yes. I, I've got tooling. I in I had um, a compliance tool in my past company that enabled us as a 2,500 person organization to assign tasks, uh, you know, to the right stakeholders. And so in the past role, having three SOC twos and combining the, the control language, uh, standardizing, I should say the control language, as well as the timeframe of the, of the audit was good, but um, it can be fun. I think a lot of it is chasing, you know, herding cats. And at the same time, some of the new tools that I have do a lot of the automation. So it'll go into the different cloud providers and pull up an alert to say, hey, your your S3 bucket isn't encrypted, for example. And so there's a lot of automation that these tools do that take a lot of the boringness out of and, and a lot of the, it's not just a, a document, um, a place to gather documents for evidence. It can actually help with allowing a person like myself to do more threat hunting and, and offensive security and red teaming while the tool itself does the compliance work or much of the compliance work. I still have to, you know, remind myself to upload that report out of the different systems. But at the same time, that's that's any with the security metrics and proving to the executive team that we have a, a more mature security posture in, in different areas. And how do we show that progression over time? So, yeah, I think it can be fun. You can make it fun. You can gamify it. We do that with internal phishing exercises. Those are interesting because uh, my user base is, is was first upset about it and then have come around and have fun with it, you know, and 
there's a competition to see who can find that phishing attack that's internal and very obvious sometimes and sometimes not so, depending on my mood. But in all seriousness, I think there, there's ways to make it fun. And, and at the end of the day, it's about education. Every opportunity to change behavior is good. And I think part of my role is to educate my user base around why they shouldn't click on things, how to identify certain attacks, um, how to manage not only their work hygiene, but their personal hygiene. So around um, breaches. So if, if my social media is breached, what would I do? And that's kind of how I pose it to them. It hits home because there's a lot of things on social media that uh, people want to keep to themselves. And so losing losing your phone or losing your password is, is as important nowadays as, as anything else. And we can bring those personal lessons to work. What I suggest we do now is we can dive into some of the, the key points that are in the bill. So there's a few things in that bill there that I think are, are good to talk about. And some will take a little bit longer than others. That's, I mean, that's fine. We've picked out a few here. So number one is, is threat hunting programs. Let's talk a little about that. Penetration testing is on there as number two. So that's something that's been in these things for a long time. But I'd be interested to kind of get your thoughts on how that's changed over the years. Ransomware is on there. Obviously, it's kind of one of the key current threats of 2022 and 2021 and probably 2023, if let's be honest. So it'd be good to kind of have a bit of insight around that, get your kind of thoughts on it. And then, as mentioned at the start of the program, we'll do zero trust architecture. So what does that look like in practice? And we'll try and ask Chad if he could able to share anything from a sure. cloud perspective as we go along. So first things first, and let's get into the three threat hunting stuff. So this is in here about doing a, an ongoing threat hunting program is, is what it's talked about. It's aimed at government agencies in the US, right? There is little detail around what is meant by a threat hunting program. So first question to James and Chad is, what do we mean by a threat hunting program? So what is that? What does it look like? How do you implement it? What kind of things are you looking for in, in that regard? I guess I'll start. I think, um, you know, the definition, I looked up the definition just because I was curious. It was about proactively and iteratively searching systems for threats that evade detection. So basically manual threat hunting. So those are the logic, how your application behaves. And that's a lot of things that are, are found with software development lifecycle work. Um, so security headers, all of the OWASP top 10, those are keys, as well as, um, you know, being able to um, look at the newsletters that I, I mean, I get I'm subscribed to multiple newsletters and and so what's out there and you know at the end of the day you want to be you want to make it as hard for the bad guy to get into your systems as possible so that they go somewhere else so yeah I think um, threat hunting is key you've got to do a little bit of red teaming as a security practitioner you've got to open up burp suite and and you've got to spend money on a, a dynamic scanner you've also got to invest if you have the, the money to do uh, linting and all the other software development, you know, there's some great vendors that have um, code scanning tools. And then you've also got to keep your, your bill of materials up to snuff for two reasons. One, for intellectual property reasons, you got to have the right licenses if you have, if you're using open source software. And then the second part, which is kind of as important is, um, can you patch what's uh, some of these libraries? Kubernetes, which we have, um, has some challenges because there are some CVEs that you can't patch. So you have to be able to be methodical about it, going back to what James was mentioning about patching and hygiene. You know, what do I patch? When do I patch it? If I patch something, does it break my application, unfortunately? And so there's a lot of, um, and you're into backporting as well. So you've got to 
I'm at the right OS, but I'm patched as much as I can. So there's a lot of conversation around the security posture of at least our applications internally. And I do a lot of educating of our software developers. What is a security header? Why is it important? What is TLS and why is it important? Things like that. Why is it important for us to lock everything down, known ports and unknown ports? What is good traffic and what is bad traffic? We have to have our own definition of that. And then also the the cadence of when does that traffic hit so that if there is some traffic that we're not expecting, we can address it and making sure that I can fine tune the alerts that we have so that if there's something I need to go and hunt down on my logs, I'm, I'm, I'm in there looking at it. So it's a lot of, a lot of different things, but it's important at the end of the day. And, and however it, however it comes to be, whether you're legislated to do it or you do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, those are, those are the challenges really. Yeah. Nice. I like the thing that you just mentioned there about um, kind of threat hunting, so threat hunting in, in, in general, so looking in, in all these kind of areas, building things out securely from scratch, I think is, is, is a good starting point. And then also you mentioned around kind of baseline, so knowing, knowing what normal looks like on a given system, on a given network, given asset is absolutely key, key and critical to doing this, this kind of threat hunting program. Yes, if you know exactly what, what good looks like on a Friday afternoon, for example, and something anonymous comes out of that and looks really spiking traffic or the suddenly communicating outbound to something that you don't recognize yeah. and yeah okay that's probably going to get your spidey senses tingling a little bit and think and something don't look quite right here i need to investigate that a little bit further i'm gonna bring james in here so james is the the whilst I said there wasn't a definition there's a, there's like four words that kind of define what this means which you need to, I'll, I'll read it to you which says establish a program of ongoing hypothesis driven threat hunting services so you know, help me out. Is is, is hypothesis-driven threat hunting services? Is that simply doing threat modeling, threat intel, and then developing attack paths off the back of that and, and checking them? Is that roughly it? You've got to build these hypotheses out, haven't you? And then obviously you've got to test them. I think I was thinking while well, well, Chad was talking, I'm looking at the problem slightly differently. So the, the types of organisations we work with, I know they're not always going to be kind of you know, CNI to use a UK term, but threat hunting is a step on for many organizations, you know, that they might be doing some threat modeling, that they might be looking at, you know, having threat intel feeds, et cetera. But threat hunting is then the next step on in, in how do we become active rather than just passive? You know, how, how do we go looking for this stuff rather than just accepting that it might be on the network, but we're not sure on the, you know, we're not, we're not sure the efficacy of our detection tools now, but they are, so we're going to go hunting for them. I think there will be a challenge for the, the cyber community to have enough good threat hunters available to be executing this work. You know, the chance description would suggest that these are complex attack paths with attackers who can evade detection using, you know, let's assume that people are running some good EDR tooling and you're evading good EDR tooling. So, so these attackers are using some really good techniques to remain off the radar so to find them, you're going to need some really good people to be working all the tools to go and find potentially indicators of compromise that haven't been picked up by any of the tooling that you're running. So I think that's going to be a big challenge for, for organisations. But like all, <laughs> like all compliance, it's got to remain vague so that it doesn't dictate how you execute this. But then equally, it's going to prompt a lot of questions from the community saying, what does that mean? Is this compliant? How do we do this? But I think from a cybersecurity consultancy, there'll be cybersecurity consultancies that look at themselves here and say, 
this is a new market or this is something that we need to develop to service the client market because it will get bigger. There'll be a bigger requirement for third-party threat hunting than probably there is currently, I would imagine. That's sort of the way, way I see it panning out. Excellent, thank you. So yeah, some good points there, I think, around the threat hunting stuff. I just I pulled it out because it's one of the first times I'd seen it written down as a you must do this yeah. action type thing. So yeah, I think it's good to start seeing that type of thing in there and it will pay dividends, I think, in the long term. One of the other points that I, I wanted to kind of cover off is, and we can do this briefly because everyone kind of knows what pen testing is and it's been around for a long time. It's fairly commoditized, et cetera, et cetera. However, what I want to kind of cover off here with you guys is, is how has compliance changed that over the over the years? So obviously the pen test now doesn't look quite the same as it did 10 years ago. Actually, what, what actually happens is what's old is new again. So things tend to go around in a bit of a circle here. So compliance might become fashionable and trendy again soon enough and and that'll be kind of the drive in the market. But yeah, curious to see what you think. It will never be fashionable and trendy. Um, I think you're right on what is old is new or you know, vice versa. So when pen testing was invented back in the day, it looked more like red teaming and its intent was more like red teaming and purple teaming. And then it became a compliance activity. So PCI is my bugbear here. You know, so it's driven everybody to an annual pen test as if nothing in the you know, intervening 350 days happens on your network or happens out in the threat actor community. We found some exploitable vulnerabilities, we fixed them, and now we're good to go for another 350 days till we kick off the next pen test. We, we've got a declarer at SureCloud. We do loads of annual pen testing for people, and we're trying to get them to move to a more continuous approach for testing. And also, pen testing has become very kind of scope driven. So can you test this system, please? As opposed to saying, can you move between the systems? You know, I, I think there's lots of underlap in networks where controls kind of miss between two systems. So it's easy for testers to move between systems, to laterally move across networks than it is kind of within a system sometimes. So just keep focusing pen testing on a chunk of the network or a particular single system. It's not the greatest way to gain technical assurance. And I hope we move more towards uh, a red teaming view of the world, you know, like the C-best, T-best, cyber approaches. And I'm hoping that the cost base will come down to enable clients to use this approach kind of more cost-effectively and more regularly. Um, Chad, just from your point of view, is there anything that you might add in there to, to what James has just mentioned? Obviously, you've got the SOC 2. You've got a control that you're going to have an annual pen test. You do the annual pen test because it's part of the control. And obviously, what you said is quite true. It's it's a snapshot in time. It's not. It's good to have. You have to have it to have a baseline. And then from there, you work on getting those stories uh pointed and getting the level of effort for fixing security headers, for fixing SQL injection attacks, for fixing um, unencrypted buckets, things like that. I mean, those are all, you take the pen test and you roll them into your your system and you throw those back at the software team and you get them fixed or your net, your infrastructure team. So there's got to be that cycle of, of, and what we do as well is we have a, a weekly, you know, dynamic scan. So we're, we're scanning production endpoints on a weekly basis and taking anything that comes up because obviously the we have product builds and things change in our environment. And so I need to keep ahead of that. So 
the biggest thing is to have the tooling in place so that you know when the pen tester comes in, you, you kind of already know what they're going to find and you can either fix it or let them find it and then fix it afterwards. And you're playing offense instead of defense and it becomes a, a conversation around scope and sequence and fixing rather than I don't know what I don't know, which is the worst thing. So I think you can use it in the right way. You can also use it to um, kind of work with your QA team and OWASP has something called ASVS, which is um, essentially a, a regression smoke testing to be able to test against um, instead of the happy path to you're testing as if you're a bad actor. So let's test our passwords. You know, I'm going to try, try to test our password policy. I'm going to try to test, you know, any number of things. And so being able to work as a security practitioner with our QA team and writing those Selenium tests suite so that when we're doing another round of uh, product release, we're not only testing the bad, we're not only testing the happy path, if you will, that the software actually works, but we're testing when we're introducing a, a malicious script and seeing if that goes through, we're introducing any number of things. And so that helps with the security posture. And I can evidence that with any sort of any number of stakeholders, a merchant or an auditor. So that's going to help me educate my software development team, as well as my QA team on what is the vulnerability, why it's important to fix. And because my challenge as a security practitioner is the YouTube videos that show someone how to get into a system, the vendors that sell tools that mock a Wi-Fi network or something you can plug into your USB port that automatically injects um, malicious software that can be used against me. So the level of the cost of entry for a bad actor, as well as um, you know ransomware as a service, hacking as a service, all of those things, um, and the associated Bitcoin that goes to pay them off. I mean, those those I'm, I'm fighting against those every day. So do what I can to make it hard for those bad actors to get into my network and and as well as insider threats to be able to cut those off. So those are the things that keep me up at night. You know, act like a good guy, test like a bad guy, but use your your powers for good and not evil. Well, sure, I like that. And I'm glad you said the I'm glad you mentioned the ASVS because I love it personally. I think it's a, I think it's a fantastic resource. So yeah, I'm glad, glad you mentioned that. And I think also there's a there was a school of thought and thankfully it kind of it's dying off a little bit, but um, used to, and it used to be quite prevalent in the past, which was, hey, you're the pen testers. Why am I going to give you any you know, credentials? You should work them out yourself. Or why do you need me to give you the IP address if you work them out yourself? But I think I think there seems to be a shift now. So I guess from your point of view there, Chad, you said you're running a lot of things. Would you go as far as to share the, the results of that kind of stuff that you're doing internally with with the pen testers that you have in-house to you know the third yeah. party? You know, try and boost their kind of value, I guess, ultimately as well. Absolutely. I think they're going to find it anyway. <laughs> I think a good pen test is a very small report. I've seen pen tests that are 100 pages and so the, with, with large appendices. And those are no fun because you have to fix them within a certain time frame or else that shows up on the report again. And then it becomes a conversation about not why did it take you so long to fix what was identified a year ago? That gets into hygiene. But yeah, I want to be transparent with for two reasons. One, I'm building a relationship with that pen tester and that pen test company. And I also want to, sometimes I want it to show up on the report to explain to management, hey, we have, we still haven't fixed this. This has shown up on the last two pen test reports. 
and it's a high or a medium, this is a risk. Whether you understand it or not, you own it, Mr. CFO or Mrs. CFO. How do you want me to handle your risk? That's kind of the, the it's important. I think it's important to escalate some things, and but you have to be very um, thoughtful about that and, and strategic because you can't cry wolf. That's just going to, you're not going to get any traction that way. You have to pick and choose your battles for sure. But at the same time, that goes back to your relationship with your software development team and, and getting those stories that are highlighting vulnerabilities um, pointed and scheduled into a future sprint. So guys, let's move on to the next point, which is about ransomware. Um, so like I say, a hot topic has been for a long time now. Seems to be quite, a, a, you know, if you're talking about the things that keep you up at night, this is probably high on the list for, for the majority of CISOs, engineers, security engineers, anyone related to security and defending a defending an organization. So um, I guess current questions I have around, you know, what's the current threat landscape look like from a ransomware perspective, particularly for a, an organization like Clyde, Chad? So, you know, what things are you expecting to see in this area? Are you kind of concerned by it? Is, that, is it something that's driving you? Oh, for sure, for sure. I think... Ransomware has driven cyber insurance premiums up. Underwriters are requiring at minimum two-factor before they'll even consider giving you cyber insurance, as well as a, you know, to be able to share a, a ransomware runbook and policy. So the good news is that it makes you have to think about what your plan is on the operation side. How often are we backing up documents? Users able to back up how often are they backing up their documents to SharePoint, Google Drive, et cetera? Because as a security practitioner, and I've seen some pretty na nasty ransomware that evades my, um, you know, we had Windows Defender at my per previous company and then this ransomware evaded, it would pop up and then go to sleep and then pop up and talk, you know, and send some messages out. At the end of the day, I'm just going to wipe your machine and give you a new image and Whatever data you've lost, you've, you know, that's a lesson learned. We've told you to back up your stuff, make sure you do it. So I need to understand what operationally, how often I'm backing things up, where those backups occur, because I need to be able to pull the trigger and continue operations if there is something in my environment. And the, the ransomware is pretty uh, nasty. And the amount of time it takes to do the forensics on it and find the keys, and there are websites out there where you can find the keys for some of these, you know, do you have time to do that? Do you have, a, if you have an entire department, that's not a bad way to go. That being said, it depends on the value of that document or two, or however much work you're going to lose. Um, that's your best defense against ransomware is your backup policy and as well as your virus protection and all the other things. So I think, and then you have to think about how does that get into the network through USB drives? You have USB policy to disable the ability to put a USB drive into your computer, et cetera, et cetera. So you have to think about all of the different, you know, parts of how a bad actor can get in with ransomware, both through phishing, through physical, through um, thumb drives and the like, and malicious websites, and, and think about that entire attack surface. And, and you're not going to get everything, but if you can get to 90% with a good backup policy, then you're in good shape. Um, James, should an organization ever, ever pay a ransom? I knew you were going to ask me that question. This is where theory and practice really do, I think, bump into each other. So, you know, kind of everyone from governments down and agencies, uh, you know, everyone would tell you not to pay the ransom because of 
the knock-on effect of where that money goes, what else it does. Obviously, it promotes more ransomware work because ransomware is now very, very profitable. So let's keep doing it. But equally, if, if, if you're the organization that cannot get access to the backups because they're encrypted as well, and you're now fully non-production, you can't pay suppliers, you can't pay staff, you can't raise invoices, you can't service customers, you can't run your operations. If the only economic out is to pay a ransom, you know, I, I defy many people not to look at that seriously and, and think about paying it. It'd be great to think we could legislate for not paying it, but I think there'll be a whole bunch of downstream law of unintended consequences. Where do the attackers go? If everybody's told not to pay it, what do we do with those businesses that go out of business? How do we support them? What happens if a public in the UK, what happens if an, an NHS trust is ransomware and is, is out of operation? I think it's a, a probably the most challenging threat we face from a cyber perspective. You know, and for many organisations, it, it becomes existential. After a couple of weeks of, of not working, this is now an existential problem. If we come back in a week, two weeks, a month, Will we still be able to run our operation? Will our customers have moved elsewhere? Will we have, will, will we have burned all of our cash that we've already been burning during the pandemic? So we've now got less cash reserves than we used to have. I think it's a really, really thorny problem. And I know I haven't answered the question. And I've done that. I've got to be honest, I've probably done that on purpose. I've sat on the fence to say it's one for the whole industry. This is not just cyber experts, but this is governments. To, to think about this problem and how do we design policy to help organisations survive a ransomware attack, but equally not encourage ransomware actors to yeah. kind of, you know, grow their operations. Uh, I think, yes, it's highly challenging, highly challenging. So you, I think back to you, Nick, for an answer. <laughs> to be honest, it was, it was a loaded question, so I appreciate that uh, <laughs> it's not a straight yes or no. I think there's an, there is an idealistic point. There is which is we shouldn't pay it. However, I would fully agree with you. I don't think there is a, I don't think there's a cut and dry case in, in, in a lot of situations. So it'll be on a case by case basis. And, and often it might be the last resort. And actually the ransom itself may actually be less, you know, money than what you're losing on a hourly daily basis type thing. So it, it will be. And I think for each individual organization, it, you know, for, for me, ransomware can be mitigated through, layered cyber defences. And it's only with all of the defences failing that you end up in a position where, you know, kind of your entire business is offline. So I think it's back to threat modelling, back to what you and Chad have mentioned as well. What controls do we need to deploy? And then let's look at what happens if that control fails? What happens if the actor evades the EDR? Okay, right. What happens if the ransomware drop then pervades the network? Right? You know, and we have to run through all of the scenarios um, so that we can ultimately keep our backups in a separate part of the network somewhere. And we've probably run some, you know, Nick, you and I, we're doing this with customers at the moment. We're, we're running kind of red teams against backup systems to see if we can get access to them, see if we can compromise and take them offline because all of a sudden backups have gone from being something that hasn't been talked about in cybersecurity for the last 10 or 15 years to something that's now fundamental to the kind of continued operation of the business. So, yeah. what, What's old is new again. 
Yeah. Exactly. Even my fashions, they're coming round again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and if I may, I think that the, as a startup, the, the conversation that I have is, okay, and this is how I do the math. I'm, I'm looking at my systems and the dollars per record. I use Ponemon as a way to guesstimate. This is how many records I have. This is what Ponemon says is how much that record, that customer record is worth. Or, And then I'm doing the math on that. So that's the, the value of my system. And then I'm looking at how much it costs to engage a third party to do forensics. And then the price goes up based on my SLA. So I could spend a lot of money on a on bringing in the cavalry, bringing in the reinforcements like within an hour, or I can spend less money to have them come in in 24 to 48 hours. And so that goes back to my, you know, I, I, there is risk. I've identified it. I have to escalate that and then let the risk owner decide how to, how much money they want to spend on, on, a forensics uh, opportunity. So with a third party company, because, you know, and, and some companies have forensics staff members, which is great. Others don't. Uh, that being said, I think um, that's the conversation that I'm in as a startup that has uh, minimal resources, but has to be very focused in, um, in how I use them. Very good. Yeah. I think one thing we could probably all agree on is that the the need to report these kind of things centrally uh, to some sort of threat sharing feeds, that kind of stuff. And whether you paid ransom or not, that's probably a good thing, right? So I think that's probably recognised as, as the right thing to do. And about, I think back to balancing the legislation, yeah. it's kind of if the legislation's punitive on those people that have paid ransoms, but then wants them to report those, then it's a balancing act, isn't it? You can't punish people for paying a ransom because it's their, their only option out of this particular problem. And then on the flip side, then <laughs> you shouldn't have done that, so we're going to punish you. So it's kind of, I think there's a real balance to be struck for, yeah. for businesses. You know, they, they don't want to be ransomware and they're not aiming to be ransomware. You know, they're, they're a victim of crime. So it's how do, we, how do we support them and how do we encourage them to do the best they can, doing the right thing, back to Chad right up at the top, you know, doing the right thing to best protect themselves. That's ultimately what I think what it's about. And so, guys, the, the last point I want to talk about here is um, that I've pulled out of the, the bill um, is, around, is around zero trust architecture. So that's kind of mentioned in there about should implement it, should should be using it, that kind of thing. But again, I wanted to get a, a you know real world insight from you, Chad, first and foremost, if you could. Sure. Just kind of what does that look like uh, in an organisation like Clyde, so a, a tech startup? I'm assuming cloud native. Um, so what you know, what does zero trust architecture look like and mean for you ultimately? I think those user access reviews become pretty important. That inventory of sanctioned applications becomes important. Having a cloud access security broker is important because I need to know that when that person is terminated, that they still can't get into the system that they've signed up for that we may or may not know about. And so the idea of identity and least privilege comes into play very, very strongly. And so we want to make sure that we're doing single sign-on and multi-factor for a number of reasons. But we also want to look at kind of the operations, where are the, the ETL, the extract, transform, and load processes? How is data moving from our front end to our back end? When we do our analytics, um, who has access to those reports? Are we handling data in a secure fashion? The good news is is that we've been able to keep those data silos pretty uh, locked down. And that's kind of key. Previous companies I've worked at, there are just data teams that are working on different problems that are putting data in different places. And so there's not a central source of truth. 
which causes challenges um, from a security perspective. If I don't, who has access to what data? Once again, going back to my simple question of where's my PII and where's my PCI, but also from when you think about lawsuits and e-discovery, you've suddenly, it's going to cost more because you have copies of copies of data, and then they're going to find something during discovery that you don't want. So you have to think about it from a legal perspective as well, which nobody wants to, but you have to, because it's going to happen. You're going to have lawsuits. There's going to be emails that are going to be um, subpoenaed and put on legal holds and things like that. So zero trust is pretty important. I think um, you just have to look at micro segmentation and really kind of go through the system like a good guy, go through a system like a bad guy. And um, from a personal perspective, I mean, you have to think about if I have to change 2,500 passwords for all of my employees and my service accounts because there's a bad actor that got into my network, um, will something break? So if you have micro-segmentation, it may break, but not as hard, things like that. And, And that goes into the threat modeling where if someone does get into my system, where do they get in? How do they get in? What, where do they get in? And what will they get out if they do get into certain parts of the network? Will they get nothing? Will they? Will it be an, a, a futile exercise where they just say, okay, I give up because this was too hard? You don't want to make it easy for the bad actors. That's kind of the key. So I think looking at ports, open ports, looking at understanding your, your IP addresses in your environment and looking at, once again, what is good traffic and what is bad traffic is pretty important. And, and flowing that all out and documenting it and looking at the data flows is key to be able to, um, one, have the evidence for an auditor, but two, be able to say with some sort of certainty that where you know where the weak points in your architecture is, and then you can plan for some defense in depth. You can change some credentials. You can do a lot of different things very quickly to reduce the attack surface. Yeah, and that's right. So the, the boundaries are also shifting, right? So, 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 oh, so you're moving from your perimeter and everything inside it is secure to kind of the perimeter is everywhere. So I might bring James quickly on that one, if you if you don't mind. What would you say about the kind of, I guess in this instance now, zero trust, then the, the identity mm. provider is absolutely critical to everything here. Yeah, agreed. And I, I haven't got much beyond what Chad said, but I, I think you're right to focus on identity, you know, back to, you know, old being the new, you know, kind of identity was always the number one control, maybe, maybe physically for physical security before it potentially, but, you know, kind of, if you don't know who's on the systems, how on earth do you protect your systems? But now with the kind of boundaryless organization that's cloud native, identity becomes absolutely crucial. And obviously us as a security consultancy, Nick, that there's probably numerous occasions where we could quote the misconfiguration of identity applications that enabled attackers to get onto systems or enabled you know, authentication to be bypassed. So it now becomes crucial. You know, it's the new firewall and therefore probably a lot of our thinking about how we best protect our business needs to be put into into identity and authentication. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay, guys, I think that um, I think that brings us to an end. Appreciate the, the insights. Chad, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you along yes. with us for this particular episode. James, thank you very much for your insights. No doubt we'll have you on, on, oh. on a future one. And that's it from us. So thank you, everybody. Wish you all well and see you on the next episode.